Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Caligaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. Today, I'm extremely excited to have on with us Paul Young, longtime instructor, good friend, passionate product professional, mentor extraordinaire, and so many other good things, including a Longhorn fan. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Rebecca. Always happy to be here and hook them horns. Yes. All right, Paul. So as we've seen uh, in the last few months, uh, there's just sort of great migration, right, uh, uh, of employees. A lot of people didn't move careers during the pandemic, uh, at least not by choice. And so there was very little movement last year. And we've just seen an enormous amount of movement in the last few weeks, few months, and we could expect to kind of continue to see this big migration of people. And I think during that, one of the really important things is, A, how do you find the right job, right? And how do you present yourself well for it? But also like as a manager now, how do you find the right person to hire? Because I can tell you, product people, there can be tough hires, but they're one of the most important hires. And when you get it right, that impact on the organization is huge. Absolutely. This is such an interesting and important topic. There's so many open recs right now for product managers and for product marketers and for product people. Uh, Almost every executive I go work with nowadays asks me, Paul, how do I find good people? I need more people on my product team. We're desperate. Um, And at the same time, there's so much mobility now as people have like realized that, you know, this, this remoteness that we're, you know, now doing during COVID, it's not going to like flip a switch overnight. I saw some stat the other day that 60, 65% of, you know, workers here in North America are looking to change jobs within the next 12 months. Wow. Uh, and, and it may even be higher in the product world. Uh, and so there's all this change. You need to upskill your team. You need to get the right people in, uh, in-house to do the job that needs to get done. The people that are already there, you know, may be overloaded, but you don't want to make a snap higher and get the wrong person because that's just death for a product team. Having a wrong, having the wrong person managing your product or marketing your product, you know that that has long term implications for your business. So how do we get it right? I'll Absolutely. Well, and you know it's interesting because it's it long. If you get it wrong, it's a long term effect on your product, but it's also a long term effect on your department, right? We all we've all dealt with this where product management isn't always fully understood. You're explaining what it is, and a lot of how you're explaining it is built on the respect they have for the team you've put together right? Or the team that you're part of. They see them, they see how quality they are. And so that, that kind of brings the trust with it. So if you break that with a bad hire, man, you can be like back at square one. hundred percent. Actually, it, I'll tell you one of my failure stories. Back in the day, one of the teams that I managed, I was like a first time, uh, you know, manager, director of product. And, you know, I went through and hired a, a new product manager for the team. You know, he was one of five or six that I had on that team at the time. And, um, let's just say it didn't work out. And I had many conversations with this guy over a series of uh, quarters to say, look, you know, the, the, the title is product manager. It's not product dictator. You, you don't get to go to people and say, do this because I'm the product manager and I said so. And he would try to go into meetings with development and marketing and so on and, and walk in, you know, puffing out his chest and say, well, I'm the product manager. Uh, and it just didn't work. It was not a good fit. And, you know, I told him, you know, maybe this, maybe this isn't the right role for you. He ended up moving on. 
Um, and, you know, I, I learned something from that, you know, in terms of the, my hiring process. Uh, but it was also, it, it did do some damage internally that I had to clean up uh, across the team, you know, with all of our peers across the, the space, because, you know, they were like, well, who is this dude? And what is he thinking? You know, we're all smart, creative professionals. We're not here to take orders, right? We're part of a team. Um, and so we, we, we don't want that. And so what can we do to like get beyond that? Make sure we don't run into that challenge to begin with. Yes. And so one of the reasons I want to have you on, not only is because this topic is super important, but you, I have seen you talk and write very eloquently about what you call the product management X factors. And I think they play such an important role in this. So let's first just kind of queue up the, the listeners a little bit and, and talk to us. What are the product management X factors? Absolutely. So a couple of years ago, uh, Rebecca, you and I started to explore this, uh, this space a little bit uh, with an assist from another friend of mine and a, a guy who used to be at Pragmatic, John Milburn. Uh, and the idea is we do a great job as an industry <clears throat> talking through the hard skills that product people need. And you don't have to look any further than the Pragmatic Framework to see those. You know, things like market research, qualitative and quantitative, win-loss analysis, positioning, marketing and launch planning, you know, all that stuff. I would consider those the hard skills of managing a product. And you can build those, and we do build those through training and experience and so on. But what we have to realize is that that is half of the equation. The other half of the equation are what you might refer to as the softer side of managing the product, the soft skills. Um, and uh, in the article that you referenced, uh, Product Management X, X Factors, uh, what we explored was that there's a whole nother series of soft skills that effective, or you might even say rock star product professionals are able to develop in order to take their effectiveness to the next level. Um, things like, you know, their personality traits, you know, are they, uh, are they curious? Are they an optimist? Are they a servant leader? Uh, it could also be skills they learn along the way. You know, like, do they have the ability to question authority and do they, knew, do they know how to do that? Can they inspire others to action instead of being that dictator, you know, like I talked about? Um, there are certain things that are very applicable to the work they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I would call these more product-oriented soft skills, like can you speak the truth to power? Um, can you manage your product as a business into and of itself, or are you just focused on the features and technology? Um, there's definitely a set of communication skills there as well. Are you a good storyteller? Are you an effective listener? Um, or do you just want to talk all the time? You know, can you pitch your ideas in a way that gets people's attention and provide synthesis of this volume of data that product people are seeing day in and day out? And then finally, there's a layer at the very top <clears throat> that you might call executive acuity, uh, which is, do you have the ability, even though you might not have an executive title, you know, when you're in an individual contributor role, like product manager, product marketer, you know, can you debate with executives and know how to have that conversation? Can you build consensus across all these different layers within the organization? Um, are, are you effective talking to a, an analyst in finance as well as to the CFO? You know, and do you have empathy for everyone else? And can you demonstrate that empathy through the conversations and influence that you're able to drop? You put all these things together and you get those X factors that, that raise someone from just being you know, a, a run of the mill product person to a rock star. Unfortunately, you know, kind of double click on all of them, but there's a few there I definitely want to. Uh, and one, one that you and I have talked about as being really important is curiosity. Why do you think that's so important for a product person? Curiosity. So curiosity is, this might sound silly. 
one of the things I realized after I went through that painful story that I told you earlier uh, is that I needed to adjust my hiring criteria for product people. Um, I obviously needed to find people with the hard skills, people who could see it as a less dictatorial role and, and one that was more you know, about you know, collaboration and driving those different levels in the organization. But one of the things I found out really quickly when I started hiring product people, there are some people whose aptitude and interest and drive is going to be more inside the four walls of your building. You know, they're just comfortable going to meetings with engineering, going to standups, going to backlog grooming, doing prioritization, working with marketing and sales and so on. And then there's a whole other set of people whose aptitude and interest is driven outside the building. And they really like going to talk to customers or non-customers. They like to figure out what are their needs and problems. Uh, they're, they're all about you know, the things they don't yet know. And for that latter group, I want those in my product roles. Because for all the reasons Pragmatic teaches around Nihito, nothing important happens in the office, outside-in orientation and so on, you got to be out there in the market doing that work. And what I have found in my career and also seen with the people that I've hired is that people who are curious by nature tend to be more outside in oriented. And so I actually have adjusted my hiring criteria for new product people to test for curiosity. Um, and so I'll ask them questions during an interview. I'm going to, I'll give you a little peek behind the curtain. So, you know, maybe if somebody interviews with me in the future, they'll be prepped for these conversations. But uh, uh, these are the kinds of questions I would ask. I, I would say things like, what's the last book that you read? Tell me about it. What's the last interesting thing that you learned? Teach me about that. You know, questions along those lines, um, because curious people never stop learning. And if you are the kind of person who hears something and it, and it perks up your ears, and you say, whoa, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that. Then you just go and do it. And they're the kind of people that aren't going to be content sitting all day on internal meetings. They want to get out of the building, either physically or virtually. Uh, and so I think curiosity is really important for that reason. That's why I would test for it in my interviews. And I would look to see that my product managers would be demonstrating it during the times that I would work with them, you know, back at the office. You know, I would ask them things like, you know, how many times in the last quarter have you gone and talked to people in the market? If the answer was, uh, I can't remember, well, guess what? You're being inside out. You know, those curious people would say, well, I've talked to five customers in the last week. Here's what I heard. Right? It's just a natural thing that comes out of curiosity. So that's, that's why I think it's so important. So let's say future Paul has uh, got someone that Bob is getting ready to interview us with future Paul. Uh, and instead of waiting for you to ask the questions to show me, to see whether or not they're curious, they want to show you that they're curious. What do you think someone could do in an interview to demonstrate curiosity sort of proactively? Great, great question. Let me think about that for a second. So Somebody shows up in an interview, they want to show their curious nature. Um, they're going to ask me questions, right? Tell me about your process for this. Tell me how you do this. Mm -hmm. Show me how you enable your product team to get outside the building. You know, I'm not the kind of person who's content sitting around talking to my engineers all day. Um, we're going to have those kinds of conversations right off the bat. <clears throat> and curiosity is one of those things that is really hard to fake, I think. Because if you're not being genuine about your interest in learning about others, it comes across really, really fake. Mm -hmm. um, and, and most people, I think, can sniff that out pretty quickly uh, in a 30-minute or 45-minute conversation. 
And so <clears throat> my advice to people is that if they want to demonstrate curiosity, be curious, right? It will right. just show up. Um, don't try to fake it because it won't come off as real. Even um, the, the, the real questions, like when some, you know, everybody's got those, everybody knows you should have questions for an interview. So they bring it prepared, but there's a difference between that and like questions that are really signal curiosity that are going to the next level that are responding to something someone said. And I think that can be an excellent way to demonstrate it. Agreed. All right. Another one that you brought up, uh, one that I think uh, I know firsthand that you excel at, uh, is the questioning authority, right? <laughs> I do as well, so it's okay. Uh, but right, uh, questioning authority in a way that is uh, that gets listened to and not get you removed to the building. So talk to me first. Why is that so important for a product person? All right, so we want product people, whether your title is product manager, marketer, product owner, whatever it is, to think of themselves as the president of their product. Now, as always, that's a tortured analogy and it's not perfect. Um, so I, I don't say you like that analogy is perfect. Like, you know, if you're the product manager, for example, you probably don't have higher fire authority, you know, but the way that I think about it is that it's a mindset. Um, how do you think about your product? Do you run it like a business into and of itself? Uh, or are you just a, I would say most product managers, they're not product managers, they're feature managers, right? They spend all day thinking about features and technologies. And instead of like thinking about running it as a bigger business. And so the reason why questioning authority is so important is what you got to realize is every, every middle manager in the business is judged by their own set of metrics. So support is measured on, you know, driving one metric and operations is measured on something else, development is measured on something else and so on. Those metrics may or may not actually contribute to the success of a product in the market. And so what ends up happening is those teams will oftentimes come up with ideas that are inside out, or they'll come up with um, directions that they want to nudge your product or roadmap in one direction or another that may be to their benefit and to the benefit of their metrics, but it may not actually benefit us as a business in the market. And so questioning authority is about when you see something happening that isn't to the benefit of the market, starting to drill down on that to find out why, why. So, the, so the, the, the best way to question authority is not to say, no, we're not going to do that. The best way to question authority is to ask why. Um, and, you know, I, for better or for worse, I've had a lot of experience with this uh, during my career. When, you, when, you're do, when you're introducing this topic, if, you know, if the audience could see my face, I had a big grin <laughs> because, you know, I've, I've done a lot of this. You know, and questioning authority doesn't have to be an adversarial conversation. It can be a very calm conversation, you know, where we're just talking about why we want to make this change. And, and usually once you find out why and what's driving the change, um, we can start to have an open discussion as to whether or not it's good. Um, but I, I don't think questioning authority is a bad thing. It's a great thing, um, as long as it's done in a respectful way. Well, those whys are another signal of the curiosity, right? They go together. Uh, so basically every two-year-old, three-year-old is really, really good at questioning authority because they can ask why like no one's business. But yeah. Another one that you talked about is storytelling. So that is why questioning authority is so important. How would you test for it and how would you demo it in an interview? You know, like so many interview things, it's about, uh, it, sometimes these are about, you know, action related questions. Tell me about the last time you questioned authority. You know, how did you structure that conversation? How did it go? 
Uh, or sometimes I'll give them a challenge. You know, I'll say things like, let's say you're managing a product and I come to you as a leader from another part of the business and I'm pushing for a change that will benefit me, but maybe not the product. Unpack that conversation for me. Tell me how you're going to react to that. And some people would say, well, you know, how big is the change? You know, it, if it's nominal, maybe I'll just do it. And, and, and so other people are going to say, immediately jump on that and say, you know what? Let, let, let's start to unpack that a little bit. Like, why? What, why do you want to do that? You know, what are you trying to, what, what problem are you trying to solve? You know, that's one of our favorite questions. Um, and if the uh, person at the other end of that conversation can't answer the question, what problem are we trying to solve here? Or they're reluctant to answer it because they know the answer is not going to be good, then that's something that we can raise across the business to combat a change that might not be effective. Um, so that's what I would look for during the interview process. It would be more demo demonstrable type stuff or example type stuff. Um, for, uh, for, for demonstrating this uh, in a proactive fashion, um, I, I don't think it's bad or wrong during an interview to provide a challenge or a pushback and to ask why. Like, I think a lot of people are afraid to do that in an interview. Like, oh, I want to put my best foot forward and show my best face or whatever. Like, one of the things I look for in my product managers is I want them to be a little bit prickly. I want them to have a little bit of an edge to them. And so it, it doesn't offend me if during an interview, a product manager might, or a potential product manager might ask me why, um, or, or what's going on with that? What are you trying to accomplish? Or like provide a little bit of pushback to some of my questions, um, because that demonstrates like, like if they can't effectively negotiate with me during an interview, how are they going to do it once I hire them and get them in the building? If they're going to be a pushover in an interview, how are they going to be once they're a product manager? My product manager can't be a pushover. Right? They need to be somebody who can you know, have that questioning of authority. And one final thought, I'll leave you with that. <clears throat> um, one of my mentors, who coincidentally is now an instructor with Pragmatic, uh, a guy named Terry Sadowski, a uh, very smart guy, uh, he told me a story early in my career that really hammered home the need for me to question authority. Uh, he said, Paul, I want you to remember that every day when you come to work, you actually don't work for this company. You work for the Young Corporation. My last name is Young. And so he said, your number one responsibility is to the Young Corporation uh, and doing what's right for them, which means that if you see something uh, that's wrong, if you see something that's driving us sideways, uh, you need to take care of that. And remember that if you hold that responsibility to yourself, first and foremost, you'll do the right thing for our business as well. And so I always try to keep that in mind, no matter where I work, I work for the young corporation first. Absolutely. I also think uh, this can be a good place to prepare some stories. Uh, you know, people ask questions, you often bring up stories or anecdotes or examples. This question authority one is a really good place to, to, to kind of outline your story. It's a true story, right? It's something that happened to you, but you can really kind of take it through. It's a, it's a great way of demonstrating that. And it's a great way of uh, being able to present it as um, sort of analytically and not emotionally as possible. I think that can be a really powerful place. Absolutely. Examples, primo. Yes. All right. Now storytelling, of which I am a big fan, right? So let's talk about why storytelling is so critical to all of us in product. Storytelling may be one of the most important things in terms of soft skills that a product manager has to develop. And you and I were talking about this a little bit in the lead up 
uh, to recording this, this pod. I think that soft skills like storytelling, for example, are things that are maybe underrated or underappreciated for a lot of product people because, you know, people are like, well, you know, I don't really need to go to, you know, a training on that or, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. And it's not until you get later in your career that you realize how big of an impact some of these skills had on your ability to advance forward or perhaps not. And uh, I'll give you an example of two product managers that I worked with earlier in my career that were on my team that I had hired. Um, <clears throat> we'll call them Daniel and Chris. And <clears throat> we hired them at about the same time. Uh, they had similar levels of experience and seniority and so on. And <laughs> let's just say they had very different results uh, in terms of their uh, prospects in that particular job, but also their career. Daniel, super smart, very analytical, very data-driven. Um, I would say his love language was spreadsheets. Uh, Chris was a little bit more um, maybe right-brained, you could say. Uh, he had the analytical piece, but he was really good at seeing trends and synthesis and finding the through line, that golden thread uh, throughout the data and constructing a, a story. And what started to happen over time was that Chris started to get more traction for his stuff with the executive team than did Daniel, uh, even though both were working on pretty compelling products and opportunities. And I, I'm convinced that one of the major reasons why was Chris's ability to drive better stories. And, and the reason why is that as humans, we tend to attach to stories and remember stories and connect with stories much better than we do with raw data. And we've all seen that person who has all the data but can't put it together into a narrative. Uh, and they go back to their desk and they're really frustrated. Oh my gosh, why is nobody listening to me? And so on and so on. Well, it's because you haven't stitched all those pieces together for you. Like you might know all the data pieces and how they all fit together, but unless you stitch that together for somebody in a way that they can remember in, in by the way, under 30 seconds, um, then it's not gonna work. And so storytelling is essential to make the data meaningful. Um, you know, we do a lot of training with data scientists and so on. I'm a huge fan of what they do. Um, we also need to supply the other side of the equation, which is to say, here's some wonderful data and here's what it means. It's providing meaning to the, to the data. That's what the story does. Um, and it gives us action, it creates empathy, all those wonderful things that come out of the story is what drives people to take action on your ask. And so I, for that reason, I think storytelling is super important. And you know, if, if I were to hire you know, a product manager, you'll typically, I, I wouldn't test for this specifically in an interview, uh, but what I would do uh, is I would just ask them for examples from their past about places where they did this or that or so on. And you'll see pretty quickly if they can construct a narrative, uh, if they can construct a story, or if they just you know throw a bunch of facts and figures onto the table. Um, good product managers can put the story together, beginning, middle, end. Who, what are the big plot points? Who's the hero of this journey? What was, the, what was the, the problem that we saw and the action that we took? And here's the result. I want all those things. I also really like to ask people about the personas they serve at their last job. Like talk to me about who, who's the persona there and, and seeing really when they're, they come back uh, and they tell me the story of the persona and they problem solve for them. Or if they just are like, we solve for everyone or 44 to 52 year old engineers who, right. I mean, you've, you've learned so much about the story, but also about their, their, where they put the emphasis with that kind of question. And in the same kind of way, the same way you would ask 
good questions to, to solicit stories. It's the same thing I said about preparing a great piece of advice I got, you know, way back in the day was you should have like written out six really good stories that demonstrate why someone should hire you. And they don't, like, you're not going to turn those in, but that just means that you've really thought through that story. You've thought through the narrative, you've thought through the points you want to make, and you've got real clarity around those. And that's six, you won't tell all six in any one interview, but having those at your disposal is incredibly impactful when you're having interviews and when you're preparing and feeling armed. Totally. And maybe even more from a product marketing standpoint, because like, what is your job in product marketing if not to tell stories, mm-hmm. right? You're telling a story of how your product can impact somebody because remember, people don't want to use your product. They want to solve their problem. Yep. And so I think the essence of product marketing through what we teach in positioning and, and marketing plans and so on is creating the compelling story about the problems you solve and then connecting your product to that story. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, One one more thing on that. Okay. If if I may. So if you are trying to demonstrate storytelling, getting to the interview and being able to tell that story in the interview, great. But before you can get to the interview, you have to get the interview. And so how do you demonstrate storytelling on a resume? Mm, That can be tricky. That's great. Well, a long time ago, uh, one of my mentors turned me on to a, I don't know if you would call it a format, but a way of presenting your story on a resume um, that I think was pretty powerful. Most people, they, they list out their experience. They have some bullet points or so on. Um, if you were to look at, uh, geez, I haven't updated my resume in years, but if you were to look at uh, an older version of my resume, uh, one of the things that I did and many of the people that I've coached and mentored have transitioned to uh, is a system that we called PAR, P-A-R, Problem action results. And so under each experience, let each company, you say, here are three problems that we encountered. Problem, 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 three bullet points. Then under the problem, you have your action. Here are the actions that we took. Action, action, action. And then finally, here were the results that we found. So that's a little story right there. Problem, action, result. And you know, for me, if I see a resume come in that's structured in that way, I'm like, wow, this person is thinking, number one, in terms of problems, which I love, you're speaking my language. But number two, you're constructing a narrative instead of just giving me a bunch of bullet points about your experiences and the features you built. Talk about compelling. And you're focused on results, right? Moving the business. It, it, it's, a, it's a great technique. Uh, I can hear everybody now pausing this so they can go update their resume. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Inspire. Sure. Inspires others to action. So Inspiring others is, you know, it's one of those things that sounds great to talk about. How do you actually do it? Well, this is going to be kind of the combination or culmination of a lot of these other things that we've talked about together. You know, so if you're curious, if you uh, have the ability to question authority, if you're gathering data from the outside in, uh, if you can speak the truth to power and so on, uh, then you put all that together, you will start inspiring others to action. Um, And so this is really about putting that story together again um, so that we can say, instead of, hey, y'all, go over here, it's follow me. Um, I've got the data from the market. Here's a problem that we've all collectively identified. Maybe we've gone through some ideation and innovation um, to think about how we might solve that. And let's go charge up this hill together. Um, And so I think of you know, a good product manager, good product marketer as somebody who's not necessarily uh, shouting, let's go over and run up that hill, 
but they're actually leading the charge up the hill themselves. They're at the front of the pack. Um, and that might mean sometimes you're gonna, you know, take the first bullet, <clears throat> but other times it might mean that, you know, people are inspired to go with you on that journey. Uh, and so it's it's a kind of a combination of all these things, but I, I think inspiring is not something necessarily that, you know, you can just say, well, today I'm gonna work on my inspiration skills, um, but rather it's the culmination of a lot of these things when you put them together. And I would also say that in, inspiration looks different on different people, right? Like some of us are more enthusiastic and outwardly, you know, energetic about about uh, about trying to be inspiring and leading, but but some are much more quieter and they inspire through different ways and different types of stories. And it can be quieter, sort of professorial, right? That it, it's not the how it's presented as much as that it is sincere and that it does combine all those other things we talk about. Yeah, you don't have to be a cheerleader. Although if you are the cheerleader type personality, yep. that's fine. I've worked with some people that are like that and, and they can be great. They could also be exhausting. <laughs> uh, right? But, you know, it could also be, like you said, that quiet leadership of leading by action uh, or leading by example. Uh, yeah. And that could be equally effective. And, and there's a time for both. Sometimes you're going to have to switch, uh, do a little context switching between one or the other. Um, you know, one of the things that as I reflect on my time as a you know pragmatic instructor, you know my, my default historically has been a little bit more like I want to lead by action mm-hmm. and I want to demonstrate you know good behaviors and market driven thinking and all that stuff. Um, you know, as I've been an instructor, one of the things that I've put on with my hat is more of like the outward you know cheerleading type thing. You know, you, you're you're going to get up with a group, you're going to try to inspire uh, through you know, being really enthusiastic about this stuff. And it has the added benefit of, you know, being genuine for me because I do believe in this stuff. Mm -hmm. So how do you sniff out whether someone is inspiring during the interview process? I might ask them, you know, give me an example or tell me about a time when the team wasn't necessarily super pumped up to go in a certain direction, but you were able to get them to go there anyways. Um, or tell me about it. Here's a good one. Tell me about a time when you had to tackle some technical debt mm. that had been racking up for a while. And uh, it, like nobody likes working on tech debt, right? Nope. Except maybe engineering, um, <clears throat> because we we want work. We want to work on new stuff, not old and busted. And so, you know, sometimes just something as simple as like, let's. How do we convince the business to set aside the effort and time for something as simple as technical debt? You know, one way to handle that is to say, well, I'm just going to let it build up, build up until it becomes a breaking point and we have to go do it. Uh, that's one approach. <laughs> Another way might be to say, well, let's, let's have a conversation about how resolving this technical debt is going to enable us to do some really awesome and creative stuff that we could never do before, right? That would be the inspires part of the equation. And if you can get people on board with that vision of where we're going, uh, then wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so I would look for stuff like that during, during the interview process. Nice. I mean, again, good stories of how you've done it. It's a great way to do it. Um, I would not recommend coming in with a, a pre-planned cheer. Um, but you know, Hey, <laughs> anything else someone might be able to do to just kind of, uh, demonstrate that. Yeah. Bring your pom-poms, to the <laughs> jump up and down, yep. give me an eye for an inspire. Maybe All not. Right. Good story. Maybe not. Not. Um, you know, I think the, the the roadmap is a natural vehicle mm. through which to have this discussion. Great idea. I mean, because by definition, the roadmap is a visionary document. And so I might ask somebody, tell me about your last roadmap presentation to, you know, a group of executives or to your customers. 
Uh, how was that received? And, and how to tell me how that conversation unfolded. And if they step back and say, well, you know, people were pretty frustrated, you know, we're behind the times, you know, we're just in catch up mode. Okay, how did you handle that? You know, what, what did you do to recover from that conversation? Um, or, or they might say, yeah, people were really jazzed up. Okay, why? You know, what do you do? Was it just the stuff on the roadmap? And they saw, like a roadmap is just words on a slide, right? How are you telling the story again? You know, how are you getting people really excited about that and mm -hmm. bought into that vision? That's what's important. And that's what I'm looking for when I talk to somebody as a potential hire. Yeah, nice. All right, so I picked out four of my favorites of which there are many. Curiosity, the ability to sort of question authority, uh, inspiration, storytelling. What, we got time for one more. So I'm gonna let you pick. Which one of the factors that we didn't talk about already, uh, one do you think is just super powerful? Oof. It's like asking me to choose my favorite kid. I was going to say, I know exactly what you're thinking. Which one? <laughs> They're both good kids. but <laughs> uh, There's a whole nother framework that we developed around these, uh, these, these soft skills or X factors. So I tend to jump over to the left-hand side of the framework where we have a whole category called executive acuity. And there's four things in there, multi-level effectiveness, executive debater, consensus builder, and empathetic. Um, and I'm debating between executive debater and consensus builder. Um, because both of those, I think, are, are really important. Um, I enjoy the fact I, that you're debating with yourself in order to come up with consensus on which one you're going to pick. Exactly. <laughs> so it's those two. So I, I, I'm going to go with consensus builder. Um, I think executive debater is really important in being able to have debates at an executive level and understand how the executive team thinks and, and so on. That's what that one's all about. But consensus builder, I think, is even broader than that. So consensus builder is understanding how all the other seats at the table are thinking. Um, so support, operations, finance, and so on. And then finding the routes to consensus amongst that group, which is really hard. And I would argue that may be one of the hardest jobs that a product manager or marketer has to take on. Um, because like I say, everyone is judged using a different set of criteria. They have different metrics and so on. Sometimes finding the, the golden thread you know, to weave your way through that entire journey is tough. And sometimes it's not even possible. But consensus builders have this innate ability to empathize with how other people are thinking and how they're measured, and then find a way through that conversation to build consensus that we should move the product, the solution, the roadmap in a certain direction or another, um, so that we ultimately build the right thing for the market, but also are able to just get stuff done. Because if you don't have consensus, you spend all this time fighting fires, pointing fingers, and getting into these internal brawls, that's not good for anybody. And it's certainly not good for your product. Um, consensus builders are able to you know, do exactly what it says. They're able to create that consensus that this is the direction we're going. Even if I'm not getting the particular thing I want today, I understand why we're doing it and I support it. That, that's the most important thing. Nice. Uh, okay, so how would you look for a consensus builder as an attribute in an interview? So one of my favorite questions to ask people on this one, uh, if I were interviewing them, is, uh, again, examples are always powerful for me in the past, because you can, you can see where people are trying to BS you pretty quick. But I would ask them, um, <clears throat> tell me about a time when you were working on a project and there was disagreement across senior leadership about the direction that we should go. Tell me how you navigated that and what the result was. And, you know, if they come back and say, well, you know, 
I leaned on my personal relationship with the CEO to beat everybody else down. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, okay. I mean, that's one way of creating consensus, um, but I would argue maybe not the most effective way for long-term relationships. If on the other hand, they say, you know what, uh, the, 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 the VP of operations and the VP of finance <clears throat> were kind of at loggerheads uh, in terms of, you know, where we should go next. One of them thought we should uh, invest in technical debt. The other one thought it was more about, you know, cutting costs <clears throat> and we couldn't do both at the same time. Uh, I ended up, you know, having individual meetings with both on the side. And then all three of us went to lunch. We hashed it out. We were able to get to consensus. We're going to do this now. Next quarter, we're going to focus on that. Um, nobody was ultimately super happy with that, but we were able to get to some agreement and move the ball forward, right? I'm pretty happy with an answer like that. You know, I, yeah. I want to hear how we handle the trade-offs. Perfection is not the goal. We're never going to get to perfect, but how do we get to good enough? And how do we move things forward? That's really what it's all about. Oh, an excellent one. All excellent ones. And, and then, like we said at the top of the show, right? Like this is a sort of almost unprecedented time in terms of people moving around and switching careers. Uh, I think it's a time when a lot of people are looking at work-life balance in a different way. But, but even with that, like half of that, that equation between work and life is work. It's a big deal, right? And finding something that you are passionate about matters. Finding the right people who work with, work for you and work with you matters. So this is a, a thing where one of the things I love about it, uh, again, the, the article is called The X Factors, and you can find it at pragmaticinstitute.com. We'll put the link in the thing, is that you've really put a lot of thought into it, Paul. You've given frameworks for people to really think about what, what they're looking for. You've given them ways for them to recognize the skill. And, and the article also talks about ways for people to build those skills up in themselves. Um, and, and it really, it is so important. It takes this type of uh, investing this amount of energy and time into uh, improving yourself and in finding the right person is, is it pays incredible dividends. Totally agree. And I get super pumped up to talk about this topic. So when we said we were going to talk about it on today's pod, I was like super happy. So thank you. And Yay! if anybody ever wants to chat about this stuff in the future, you know, you can drop my contact info into the show notes as well. So if anyone wants to reach out, always, always game for that conversation. Awesome. Paul, it is an absolute pleasure, as always, having you on. Any advice you want to leave the people listening who are either looking for their next hire or looking for their next great job? Yes, actually. So, and you know, I'm never above a little plug. <laughs> so if you are a Pragmatic alumni, and I assume many of you listening to this pod are, uh, and you're not on our Pragmatic alumni community, you should be. We call it the PAC, Pragmatic Alumni Community. Uh, Pragmatic now has over, I think, 200,000 alumni who have gone through our various programs, and a solid chunk of those are on the PAC. And so, you know, if you're looking for your next job, well, hopefully, if you are listening to this and you believe in what we're teaching and preaching here at Pragmatic, you want to find other people who think like you, and you're going to find them on the PAC. Many of them are looking for people to join their teams. Uh, and same thing, if you're looking to hire, you want people who speak this mm -hmm. language, try out the pack. There's a whole solid group of people out there who already speak this language. You want to do that. So that'd be my starting point. Uh, you can also revise your, uh, your resume using that par format. That's what I look for. I mean, everybody's got their favorite resume format, but I, I think that's a good way to show uh, that number one, you're results oriented, but also that you're constructing a story um, to get people's attention. Maybe you can cruise through some of those filters. Uh, and then the final thing I would say is that the best roles that I've ever found in my career 
have not been by putting my resume through a search engine. Uh, they've been through personal relationships. And, you know, every couple of weeks you read an article about how that's dead and so on. I don't believe that for a second. Mm -mm. Um, you know, I, I think that the relationships you form, which by the way, come out of your soft skills, are going to find you that next role that's going to be a difference maker for you. And, you know, we all talk about how, you know, you've heard the saying about, you know, oh, we're like family here at this company. And that's, nobody's like family. Your family's like family, right? But you do want to, I want to reinforce the thing that you said, Rebecca, the people you work with matter. If you don't like the people you work with, if you don't have good relationships, then you're going to hate waking up every day and logging onto Zoom or going into the office or whatever. And nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, make sure that as you build up those soft skills, you're using them in your personal life as well as your professional um, so that you can find people that, you know, have the same values and kinds of things that they want out of their career that you do. And you're going to be happier for it. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help elevate your product, your company, and your career. 